Chanel and welcome to Seoul, a podcast that shares food for thought rooted in culture. Every episode, I sit down with a black or Latinx woman to talk health, wellness, and self-love. Today's guest is India Perez Urbano, a third-year medical student, harm reduction advocate, and founder of Dulce. Welcome to Seoul, this is Sienna Chanel, and today we have the inspiring India Perez Urbano in the house. India, how is your heart today? Hi, my heart is doing really well. Um, It's a beautiful sunny day in San Francisco, so I'm feeling good. I love it, I love it. Um, It's raining over here, I'm in New York, so it has just been gray and sad all day. So I'm really glad that you've gotten some sunshine and happiness today. Are you taking school from home? Yes, I am. Um, oh my goodness. It's, it's a time. Very it's such a crazy but. time. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Um, well, let's start off with your journey to medical school. What inspired you to pursue medicine? That's a good question. So I grew up with a stepdad who was a physician. Mm. So I kind of was exposed to the medical field through him. Mm. But I really, I realized I didn't know anything about the field of medicine until I came to med school because even though I grew up around him, like there, the field is so vast. And I really had no idea what it actually meant to be a doctor Mm. until I was like doing it. So, but I knew that I was really interested in health and I knew that my stepdad was doing a lot of work around health and um, working with like vulnerable communities. He did a lot of research around hep C among injection drug users in the South Bronx. So he was doing work that I thought was really important. And I was interested in a lot of the same things. And so, you know, to me, it seemed like medicine was a really powerful tool to bring a lot of justice and quality of life to those who are most vulnerable and those who suffer from the most structural oppression. And I was just really interested in all of these. And also like naturally a caretaker. I always joke, like I'm a I'm a cancer, so I'm like naturally very maternal (laughs) and just naturally like really enjoy supporting folks and like making sure like they are like set up for success. So I felt like medicine was a great political tool, but also at the same time, a great tool to connect with folks in their most vulnerable time. So yeah it's a long it's a long answer but I honestly like can't see myself doing anything else because it's just like it's such a great field and it's there's so you can shape it to be whatever you want it to be um and you have such a privileged relationship with people so I really enjoy it Mm -hmm. I totally um vibe with your perspective on medicine as a tool to connect with people and care for people. Um, I think you, you studied sociology in college. Yeah. Yeah. I also study sociology. So how would you say that what you studied influenced your perspective entering the field? 
Yeah, sociology is an amazing field. I'm so happy that I chose that as my major. Again, like I came to Harvard and had never heard of sociology before Mm. and took this one class on death and dying. Mm. And it was a sociology course and he, um, the professor introduced this idea of like six degrees of, uh, there's three degrees, there's six degrees of separation, but three degrees of influence. And so he did a lot of social network research where like you as an individual influence, not only the behaviors of your friends, but the behaviors of your friends' friends and your friends' and your friends' friends' friends. So there's like these three degrees of influence. And I thought that was really interesting of how like sociology weaves in the connection between like the micro level, meso level to the macro level of like how, how things manifest on, um, on a really like individual human level, like how mm. these big ideas of these big social patterns, these big societal like structures, how do they manifest on like the individual? And so I think a lot of, that's how I think a lot about health, especially mm-hmm. working with folks who like inject drugs or um, houseless, like how do these like big political like ideas, our socialization, our laws, all of these really big, big things end up manifesting on an individual's body in terms of illness, disease, like even like mat- like physically manifest in terms of wounds and injuries and things like that. All of these can be explained through a lot of these social structures and patterns. And so it for me was a really great way to think about community health. And it, I think, I think that perspective is is lacking in medicine too because we mm. medicine has historically been a field that's very biological mm. and it's only until recently that we've started to include the social and the cycle so, so the biocycle social model um, <laughs> so yeah I think sociology has been like really influential for me in terms of how do I um, think about where my role is and think about where are there opportunities to influence and change the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about it on those, those levels of society. Yeah, you mentioned that medicine is, it, like it has a, a little bit of a stereotype surrounding it. Um, and it's also a pretty white dominated profession traditionally. Mm-hmm. So how are you changing the narrative and how do you combat stigma that you faced as a student in medicine? Yeah, you know, medicine, it as a whole is like very sterile and Mm. very cold. And it's something that I struggle with every day coming from a Dominican Trinidadian family where like, we're very warm and we're loud and we're touchy feely and we have a we have social interactions and we have expectations for social interactions that are completely void in medicine because mm. a lot of those things are not seen as professional they're not seen as um, ways to like garner respect from patients and there's a lot of hierarchy in medicine and so mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that I, I try to hold on to that side of me and that like the warmness and the, 
<laughs> like the loudness and the welcomingness of just like what I've been, what I've learned from my culture. And I, you know, I'm like trying to make a promise to myself to not lose that as I go like deeper into the field because um, you find that, I think you find that it's just easier to, to kind of take away certain parts of yourself to yeah. just, be, you know, just to fit the mold of what medicine is defining as, as um, professional. But I think another thing is for me, I've always done the things that I've really enjoyed and that I felt were really important. And this is mm -hmm. like the advice that I always give to everyone else, because when you do do that, you do things well. Mm. and you you are more connected to the work that you're doing and you value the work that you're doing and you're mm -hmm. able to make I think more change than if you follow the mold of what you're supposed to be doing yeah. in order to get to your next place and so I've always been true to that so I've done a lot of unconventional things like around like HIV advocacy or like needle exchange and stuff like that and I've had to, I've had to like also then triage the places in medicine that are just not for me. And so in applying to medical school, like, you know, what schools are down and what schools are not. <laughs> and UCSF was always the, my number one school because it has a reputation of being very down. And it, mm -hmm. it definitely met that expectation for me because they actually love to see uh, and like cultivate learners and students that are doing work that are that is like around social justice that is pretty progressive and they definitely are changing the narrative for our understanding of health and what we consider like valuable in healthcare and health research and clinical research so um, i was i feel very much like i can be myself at ucsf and it's actually yeah. celebrated and so I hope that I can, you know, just take what UCSF taught me and the values UCSF like holds because they, they very much align with me, but taking it in other places because I think other places are very behind. Um, and that's just a product of like this long, long, long history of medicine being, like you said, very white male dominant and very like biologically focused. And so there's a lot of students at UCSF who are definitely like, nah, this is not it, right? And like, who are like working tirelessly to yeah. like reimagine healthcare and like reimagine um, what we prioritize. Um, mm. And we're all gonna be like seeds like disseminated and planted elsewhere. <laughs> we're a really great group of people at UCSF, so. I love that so much. Um... And I, I like that there's not just one vibe to the medical profession. I only know medicine through my mother. She's a nurse. She's been in the healthcare um, field for over 20 years. And she, she talks about how the field is changing, but it's also very slow. So how do you grapple with that? Yeah. It is a very slow changing field and I think you know part of that is what medicine is very evidence-based and so a lot of people are not willing to change how they do things unless there's evidence for it unless there's data studies like 
random con randomized controls trials that can back things up. And so a lot of times, like people of color who are in medicine find that going into research is a way to really advance a lot of the issues that they value because it's a way to push the field in the in in like the direction it needs to, in a in a way that speaks their language. So you speak if you can talk research, then you can convince a lot of people in the room that um, they need to rethink how they're doing things. Of course, that's like super slow, but um, it might be the most like effective and then everyone has like a different approach to it because there's some people who are just like much more activism um have more of an activism approach about it and um, but you know i think i don't know all change doesn't come overnight and you have to be a little bit patient with it you have to be dedicated and, you know, after the George Floyd stuff happened, myself, along with a bunch of students, have organized a bunch of Black students on campus, both at the med school and other schools at UCSF, to codify and put forth demands that we felt like would advance our experience at UCSF. And, you know, taking advantage of opportunities like that, we saw like this was a very, like as much as we were like so much in pain and so exhausted by these events, we knew that like this was an opportunity for us to like ask for something and have it be met because you can't like, <laughs> you can't sit there to, and like, say to our face like we don't value your experience here right after like the mm -hmm. death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so we knew that and we kind of like collected all of the things that people that students have been asking for for a really long time so I think like being able to have conversations with leadership in a way I don't know every, everyone has a different approach but we basically just sat down and we're like this is really hard for us and mm -hmm. we can't like continue on and be the best doctor that we need to be if we're not supported in this moment and mm -hmm. like these are the things that we need from you and I think you know maybe it's just specific to our school that they were receptive to that but it was like a good it was like the right time and place and it was the right type of conversation that we had and we were able to actually like bring forth a lot of things that needed to be brought forth like years ago. So <laughs> um, yeah, definitely taking advantage of like the political opportunities that are around will get you somewhere. Yeah, you kind of touched on this, but how would you say medicine and social justice intersect? I think they're, they're crucial to each other. Mm -hmm. I think I think that, you know, physicians have the responsibility to use their positions to carry out social justice objectives, just in the name of health justice, because it's actually incredible when you are in the medical field, you see all of these social injustices play out in your clinic, in your patients, mm -hmm. and a lot of times physicians feel very limited in that like I'm just here to like speak to my patient in this 15 minute time window and just like order labs for them 
But I really do think that if you like uh, open up your mind, you would see there's so many other ways in which you can affect a lot of the the structural like root causes of 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 why people are coming to your office with these things. And I think social justice is oftentimes fighting for, you know, just health, Um, whether that's like mental health, physical health, like social, spiritual well-being. And I think that, you know, as providers, like we have the tools to advance folks' health and we have to make sure that we are adjusting ourselves to make sure that patients are getting the most optimal care. Because sometimes when we have an idea of how to deliver care, it doesn't match up with the patient's needs. And so we have the responsibility mm-hmm. to accommodate ourselves and meet people where they're at. Um, and then take those stories and take those examples and bring that to the folks that are making policy and bring that to like the people who are designing healthcare systems and saying like, this needs to be done differently. I'm really enjoying this conversation because I don't hear a lot about medicine. I hear a lot about business just because of like the people I surround myself with. And it's so refreshing to hear about the future of healthcare from someone who is in it and making it right now. Um, It's truly inspiring. And you started a harm reduction organization. Mm -hmm. How, what is harm reduction and why is it important to you? Yeah, harm reduction is basically a set of tools, strategies, ideas to reduce someone's harm. And that's a very general idea, but, a lot, but this idea is mostly applied in drug use. Mm. So what are tools and strategies um, and principles that an individual can take to reduce the harms that are associated with drug use, whether that's drinking alcohol, um, injecting heroin, smoking crack. There are, you know, a number of things that one can do to mitigate a lot of like the sequelae that may come with that use. Mm-hmm. And it's, harm reduction is really a way to re- redefine like, or reframe our idea around drug use and substance use because it's something that is so universal mm-hmm. and it's something that's been happening for centuries, but for some reason is something that is very demonized. And mm-hmm. when we demonize this behavior, these actions, we deny a lot of people information that is, you know, life-saving. And we mm-hmm. practice harm, I mean, medicine as a field is basically harm reduction. Like, how are we reducing somebody's harm? Like, somebody mm-hmm. has risk factors for a heart attack. Our main job is to make sure that we reduce those risk factors. So we give them a baby aspirin, or we regulate their like cholesterol levels like we every single day we're practicing harm reduction but um you know colloquially it's like really seen as something or like the field is really focused a lot around drug use Mm. and so things like designated driver is a harm reduction strategy or sterile injection equipment for people who inject drugs is a harm reduction strategy there's also Mm -hmm. narcan which reverses opiate overdoses that's a harm reduction Mm -hmm. strategy so there's a wide breadth of like uh, strategies that are really really like essential for people's health Mm. and care I always felt like harm reduction was a really radical idea 
but it actually really isn't. It's actually very simple. It makes a lot of sense. But I remember when I, I was first introduced to harm reduction when I was in college and went to this needle exchange program in Washington Heights called the Corner Project. And mm -hmm. I walked in and it's like this room that was like playing like merengue and there was like all of these people there hanging out drinking coffee like yeah. picking out syringes like picking out cookers like doing all of these <laughs> things like getting themselves some condoms and it was just such a fascinating space to me because we don't actively and openly talk about like drug use in society but here was the space where like everyone there uses drugs and everyone there finds it as like a really strong part of their identity mm. and have no qualms with talking about it. And they find community. I think something I really enjoy is places where people who are, who are seen as kind of on the margins of society find like family and find community and syringe exchange programs is definitely that space because a lot of times they're set up in a way where there's um, a drop-in center and you get to hang out there and you know receive like your equipment but also receive education connect mm -hmm. with other people who are considered your peer because they also use drugs and so I was just like my life was changed after I was exposed to syringe exchange programs because I was like this is amazing like this is how this is how health should be delivered this is how we should be thinking about health in this like really decentralized way that it's yeah. in the community it allows for like a common space for people to connect with each other and there's no shame attached to the behaviors in which they are engaging in there's actually an empowerment to make sure that they are equipped with like knowledge and tools and strategies to make so that allows them to take control over their own health and so yeah puts a lot of faith into the individual in terms of saying like I know that you can be uh, an agent of change in your own life and I know that like you can be you can be educated and you can become knowledgeable about these things a lot of times I think medicine just assumes patients can't understand things or they're doing something because of a moral failure or they're doing something because whatever the idea is um, they have low health literacy like I hate that concept like harm reduction is like no these people are total like human individuals who are like very capable of like being knowledgeable about the things that they are engaging in and we can help them mm -hmm. by advancing their knowledge and they don't have the knowledge to begin with not because they are dumb uh, or they can't understand it but because this is not something that is being offered to them because society doesn't even want to talk about drug use so i've always thought of it as a really really special approach to how can we like improve the lives of others it's really fantastic if you ever get to like hang out in the needle exchange you totally should <laughs> that's awesome it sounds like you're really interested in this concept of healthcare as community care mm -hmm. this idea of decentralizing healthcare is really fascinating to me and i've i'm also really interested in um urban planning which may seem really random but the built environment is like I think essential to to health and I think there's a lot of weight I think we're very limited in our idea of how our built environment can be structured I think mm. 
we need to really start incorporating urban planners into our idea of medicine and health because we need to start reimagining our cities and reimagining our spaces to allow for more healing and more preventative health. And, you know, so when I think about healthcare, like I think about like in an ideal world, we would have clinics everywhere, like in the library, at school, at work. Mm. Like it wouldn't be like a place where you go to, it'd be a place where healthcare comes to you. And it also would take into account a lot of these, a lot of the like basic needs of people like housing and food and all of these things are like really basic that are really essential to care and that are really essential to like when we when we ask somebody to do something as part of their treatment you know we have to think about those all those other factors transportation so i you know something i think about all the time is like our cities are not built for people who live on the street i feel like we need to reimagine our cities to accommodate for that idea not because it's like i never want to give people who are living on the street a home but because it's kind of a harm reduction strategy like until we can get everybody a home we have to acknowledge the fact that everyone's you know, people are going to be sleeping on the street. And mm. so how can we like reimagine a city that takes that into account? It's just crazy to like have to think about like sleeping on the sidewalk or like not having a, an address or like not having access to running water and a bathroom. Like this is just wild to me. So, you know, structurally, I think a lot about considering medicine and considering health in every little part of the community including like how we are building it and how we are structuring it and how we are designing it mm-hmm. it sounds like you really really care about people i i do <laughs> yes yeah i wasn't saying that in a sarcastic way i just think that no. <laughs> i just think that that's so special to like think of healthcare as intersectional and something that can be made accessible to everyone. And this idea of reimagination and putting and putting clinics on libraries, like I didn't even think about that and how, oh man, I'm just really enjoying it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of, you know, syringe exchange programs do that pretty often, you know, they, mm-hmm in the needle exchange, you know, the ones that are like, can get the funding that they can, will bring doctors into their program, into their spaces. They'll bring HIV treatment into their hep C treatment. Mm. Um, And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of it is just teaching folks, you know, things that are inherently medical, like when you're injecting, there's a lot of education around your vasculature this is a vein, this is an artery. You don't shoot up an artery, you shoot up in a vein. You need to circulate like what veins you inject in. And so, you know, there's, we'll pull out like a picture of like a body in their anatomy and we will teach that to folks. And so I think medicine is inherently, you know, part of everyone's everyday life, but we silo it to be something that only the elite can understand and only the elite Mm. can have access to but everyone has a body and everyone like has you know this anatomy and everyone has these processes going on um yeah so it's really important to educate people especially because i think a lot of times messages get missed in medicine because we're not actually educating folks on like why are we giving the medicine that we're giving them 
why did we see the lab value that we saw or why are we doing this exam mm. or this test? That gap makes it people less invested in their health and also like don't under they don't it's harder to understand like what is happening to me when no one is sitting me down and being like, okay, this is how I'm thinking about it. And this is how your body works. And this is how it's like, oh, it's not working as well as it should be. And this is why we need to do what we need to do. Mm. A big question that you were asking just now is why? Um, and I'm curious to know what's your why? I interpret that as being like, uh, what is like my purpose? Mm. Or like, what is, what is my goal here in life? And I, that's like a that's a great question. And that's the age old question. Um, <laughs> I think my my purpose. I've always wanted to kind of like be a part of something that is. I wanted to create something that became larger than myself. When I think about what kind of legacy do I want to leave, it's something that doesn't even it's not even about me because it's just so it's just so much larger than me that it it made you know long lasting change and so I'm still trying to figure out like how that looks like but i also I also like understand that there's opportunities to do that in very small ways mm. in individuals' lives the people that you just like built relationships with somebody told me once so harvard has this yearly thing called harvard thinks big i remember someone saying to me like oh there needs to be like a harvard thinks small because mm. harvard socializes you to think so much about like these really really big things like you're gonna become the president of the united states you're gonna be the CEO of Gilead. You're gonna, like, they like, <laughs> they envision all these really large things for you, but they kind of leave out a lot of the small people and mm. like uh, inherently just not, doesn't value a lot of impact that you can do on a small scale mm. that is still a big impact. So, you know, like, how do we think about this? not like this entire country, but like, how do you think about like this one city or like this one neighborhood and how do we have an impact in that one neighborhood, which yeah. is still a big impact, you know? So I've always really liked that idea of like, how can I think smaller? And, mm -hmm. and how can I invest in like one area and like do really well at it and make a big impact in that area in, in like reimagining like what, how we're thinking about it and how people interact with it. That's kind of always been my thing, which is hard when you like have a million and a half interests. <laughs> yeah, you wanna do harm reduction, but you wanna also like be an OB-GYN and work with pregnant people. And then you also like urban planning. So for me, I'm like all over the place and I'm still trying to figure out a way where I can like focus on one thing. <laughs> I mean, I like that you have a ton of different interests. It means you'll never get bored. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what I should tell myself. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I want to shift the conversation a little bit because 
we talked a lot about caring for others and I've loved yeah. it, but I'm curious to know how you care for yourself and how you think self-care and social impact intersect. Yeah, oh my God, self-care is so, 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 so important. You know, Audre Lorde always described it as like an act of resistance to mm. like care for oneself, especially for black women who, something I've been struck by this year is just the extent to which black women like have put the team on their back. Like this society is just being carried by black women and yes that really struck me like there's been a lot of conversations about it after like george floyd and stuff mm. like that but it really struck me in the hospital i swear like 90 percent of the nurses are black women <laughs> you know and you if you walk around yeah. in the park like 90 percent of nannies are like black women like black women are taking care of your kids are taking care of like your elders they're taking care of you in the hospital. Like we are everywhere taking care of everybody. <laughs> and that just really like smacked me in the face this year on a really like on a really deep level. You know, a lot of black women will probably go like just like naturally are drawn to these types of like helping careers, quote unquote, because it's like, I think it's our way of, you know, being like, like you know, being generous and like giving back. But part of that, like, flip coin is taking care of yourself. And so I think I'm still learning ways to do that. For me, taking care of myself is, like, spending time with myself and also having independence. That's kind of a big thing for me. So, mm. you know, I live in a studio in San Francisco. Like, that was something that I decided to do, even though, like, SF is the most expensive city in the country. <laughs> I was like, you know what, my loans are just going to have to take a hit for this. So I, that's something I just prioritize for myself because allowing myself to have a space that I can like make my own, my home is really important to me, which has been interesting just through the pandemic because now my home has become everything and it's a little mm. bit less peaceful just because I do everything from home now. There's, there's no boundaries anymore um, because everything happens in one space. Mm. so things like that and like I have a cat who's like my life he's like my son <laughs> and he is really Christian I actually got him at Harvard illegally we're not supposed to have cats oh. in the dorms but I had him there <laughs> yeah and again little things that make me feel like independent really really like help me and just being able to set my own schedule and that has been really helpful for me in terms of just taking care of myself and you know when I when I'm alone I like can recharge because mm. sometimes after like hanging out with so many people or spending so much time with so many people like in clinic seeing a patient every 15 minutes like it's a, like a lot of social interaction mm. and I just need to like recharge and I do that like by myself like with my cat or whatever watching girlfriends like whatever <laughs> whatever the case may be um Food, I love food. Oh, me too. I like I like eating more than cooking, but I will cook <laughs> because <laughs> because I'm broke and I can't be eating out all the time. But so I love food and I love to just like make things um, 
so that I can eat them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you are speaking life into me right now. <laughs> I was literally talking to my meditation teacher a few hours ago about how I have this this problem where I'm, when I'm on Zooms, I'm looking at cake on Instagram. Oh my goodness. <laughs> when I'm on Zoom class, I'm looking at recipes because I'm like, what do I want exactly. to eat for my next meal? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of that is just like cultural. Like we, like at least in my family, that's how we show love is we would cook for, for, you know, like you cook for somebody, you make them well fed, then that's how you know that, you, that, you know, they're loved. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many times has your grandmother called you and been like, did you eat today? Or like, <laughs> you gained weight, like what's going on? Or you lost mm-hmm. weight? So it's definitely just like, it's just in my blood. <laughs> Honestly, yes, absolutely. Every time I would go visit my grandmother, she would call me at least three times while I was in the car. She'd be like, what do you want to eat? What do you want to eat? I'm making you mm-hmm. mashed potatoes. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. Anything you want, she got it for you. <laughs> God forbid you didn't finish your plate, too, you know? Oh, it's gosh. An insult. It's such an insult. They want to know what's going on or you want to diet. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, you, you mentioned how self-care is super important. And you also started Dulce. Um, mm-hmm. which is like self-care and affirmations in your inbox. I don't want to describe it for you, but that was my take. Yeah. Um, That's a perfect description, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but why would you say it's important for women of color specifically to practice self-love? Um, Dulce really came out of you know me trying to practice, be more intentional about my self-love. And then finding that, like, poetry was, like, just, like, little pieces of writing that I would find just, like, made my day. And then wanting to share that with folks. So basically, like, I will just, like, find poetry, find pieces of writing, and we'll send it out once a week. And they're particularly targeted for, like, women of color. I always try and find um, writers who are, like, women of color because I think there's something so special about affirming each other. Like, I think when you, like, affirm another, like, person, particularly another woman of color, like, it is also, like, kind of practicing self-love. Like, there's something about, like, getting a compliment from another sister that's just, like, ooh, girl, like, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> it's so much better than receiving it from anyone else and I think we just are like tied to each other like spiritually in that sort of way and also just society in general is like not it's not it's not one to really practice like unconditional like regard unconditional acceptance of women of color Mm. there's a lot of like expectation a lot of restrictions put on like how we're supposed to be how we're supposed to see ourselves how we're supposed to act what we're supposed to do mm-hmm. and not a lot of celebration of black women mm-hmm. or women of color sorry so I felt like 
why not like have this kind of space where like it's just women of color affirming other women of color in a way that only like we could do because I feel I feel like there's a lot of like like parts of our experiences that like only speak to us and certain things mm. that only speak to us and like I don't know it just it would hit differently if it was like not a woman of color giving affirmations as being a part of your own self-care is from like this this book that I read by Deepak Chopra anyways he like outlines all these principles of like how you should live your life basically one of them is like the act of giving and receiving and he mm. describes this as like a circulatory system just mm. like blood like there's blood flows to and flows away from and you cannot give without receiving otherwise you block the flow so i really liked that idea and he also talks about silent giving which mm -hmm. as the best way to give so instead of what you know you shouldn't do it all the time you should also like actively just like publicly give like if you give somebody a gift or you give somebody a hug that has value but also when you just yourself like say a little prayer for somebody without them knowing like that is like a silent way of giving and it's like actually very valuable because it's not for like the other person's like gaze you just like you yourself have the intention of giving to that person without them even knowing it kind of makes it more valuable so I was thinking a lot about that in terms of when we are sharing pearls with each other where it's like we're giving and we're receiving and so you know a lot of times the emails that are sent out do say or like pieces of writing that people had submitted to me to share with everyone else. So yeah. I kind of see that as like that little circulatory system of <laughs> giving and receiving. <laughs> I love it. It's like you pour into your cup, but you also pour into others' cups. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's always, that's always been something that I um, try and like be, really intentional about and really remind myself of is like, like you said like my cup is full like how can I give a little bit to somebody else and so mm -hmm. I've had the privilege and to be in spaces that are really hard to get into and like how can I share a little bit of that space with somebody else um, whether that's like someone applying to Harvard someone applying to UCSF or somebody trying to go into medical school like I try as much as I can to just like share all of the insight that we've been able to culminate in these spaces with other people and demystify a lot of the process because you have to, you can't just like sit there with your cup overflowing because your cup is like, by the time you enter a lot of these spaces, like in medicine, like my cup is probably never going to be empty. I'm always going to have a well-paying job. I'm always going to have the privilege of what it means to be a doctor like my privilege only goes up from here at this point so my cup will never be empty it's continue it's a continual flow <laughs> so I need to like you know give it out and like share that because um, other people deserve it and you know it's it's not about me it's about like how are we like uplifting our entire community yeah it has been such a gift to talk to you today and you shared a gift earlier with me, your piece of writing. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing 
either some writing or some affirmations with the listeners? Yes, I can share that one I sent you. It was one of the pieces that I wrote for Dulce. Okay, so I wrote this. Okay, I'm not, again, I don't identify as a poet, but sometimes, you know, I just write a little few things here and there. So this is something that I wrote for Dulce. Beautiful brown girl, call upon your sisters. Speak their names. You whisper to the moon and a rumbling, roaring tide arose. They came. Long, dark fingers, greased, weighted in your coiled hair. Plump, broad breasts, ripened, poured milk into your radiant daughter. Flossed, ivory smiles, gap-toothed, lisped lore of your roots, sang your praises, and preached sage lessons you were too stubborn to accept. What a sight, beautifully powerful, powerfully beautiful, when you nearly burst at your seams, this is the company that sewed you whole. When you conquered, they danced. When you forgot yourself, they led you. Even when you didn't call upon them, they came. So that was wow. just kind of my idea of like, what it means to be a, like a woman of color mm. in a community of other women of color. We really just hold each other down. <laughs> mm. um, snaps. <laughs> that was beautifully powerful and powerfully beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. And thank you for being here today. This has been amazing. Thanks for inviting me. This is an awesome conversation. to Seoul. My guest today was India Perez Urbano. I'd like to thank her for letting them light in with me. If you enjoyed this episode of Seoul, share it with a friend and have them follow us on Instagram at Seoul the Podcast. That is at S-O-L-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Take care and I will see you soon, sunshine.